Um, well, good evening. Uh, my name's Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it'd be really great if you keep uh, that part of the Bible open. It's my joy and privilege over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking through this book of Ruth. I'd encourage you at some point to, you know, sit down in one sitting and just read through it. It's very short, very easy to read. Um, but right now, I'm going to pray for God's help uh, to hear him speak to us tonight. So please, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word given to us. Please still our hearts now and open our ears to hear you speak. Please comfort us. Give us joy and refreshment from you tonight, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, what did you want to be when you grew up? Maybe some of you are still working this out as well. Uh, that's why you're at uni. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, for me, two things come to mind. Uh, the first one was at the end of primary school. I remember our teachers uh, asking us, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an architect. Uh, I think mainly at the time it was due to the fact that under my bed was uh, a big Lego city. You'd pull out this big piece of MDF board and there was, you know, a Wild West section, an underworld, underwater section. There was a city section. Uh, I love designing this and I play with it all the time. And I reckon I thought that's probably what, you know, being an architect is kind of like. Uh, but my hopes of becoming an architect were dashed. When I went to high school and I remember asking the teachers about different subjects that I thought would help me, you know, growing my love of buildings and architecture, and they, they didn't offer them. Uh, but at the same time, I think my hopes uh, changed because I realised I had another dream. And this dream won't surprise some of you. I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted to represent my country in athletics. Uh, so I joined an athletics club. Uh, I trained my little heart out. But... I, was, I still wasn't the best. My hopes of becoming an Olympian were dashed time and time again. I'd go in a race, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but you're running and you're running and you're running, and then the other athletes just kind of, you know, float away from you, and there's nothing you can do about it. What is it that you want to be when you grow up? What hopes and dreams do you have? Maybe, maybe some of you are living them out. You've made that uni degree, you've got into that course, and, you know, everything's going to plan. But I imagine even so far, maybe some expectations, some hopes, some dreams aren't coming to fruition. They haven't turned out like you thought they would. Maybe, maybe it's not even work-related. Maybe, you know, you, um, you, your, your family situation isn't like you thought it would be. Maybe, you know, you've, you've wanted to go on that overseas trip at the end of, of, end of school and it hasn't worked out. You know, maybe uh, the hopes of relationship. Maybe even thinking about some of these things, you know, it's filling you with a sense of, of pain or grief as you realise some of the plans and things that you've had for your life aren't happening like you thought they would. So my question is for you, maybe if, even if this hasn't happened yet, where do you go uh, when your hopes are dashed? What do you do? when the plans and expectations you have for your life, uh, when every decision or plan you make doesn't seem to be going the way you thought, maybe even when you face wave after wave of suffering and grief, or maybe you look around and you see your friends uh, living out the dreams that you had for your life, 
Where do you turn in those moments? And maybe a, maybe a bigger question behind it all is, where is God in those moments? Where is he in the pain and disappointment of life? Well, let me tell you, God isn't silent. And by his goodness, he's given a book, us a book like Ruth, which deals exactly with this question. Uh, John Piper says, The book of Ruth teaches us how to walk through painful days of life, through the painful days of life, and keep trusting God. But before we dive into the story of Ruth, let's think about where it sits in the Bible. Always a good thing to do is think about the context, what comes before it. And uh, the first verse kind of gives us this context. Have a look there with me at the first verse. It says, In the days when the judges ruled. Uh, This reference to the time of judges uh, is referring to a time about 3,000 years ago. Uh, This was a time when Israel had no king. They're in the promised land. Uh, and the book directly before Ruth, if you look just over your page in the Bible, you can see it's called Judges. It tells us of this time period. And uh, the book of Judges, it's not a happy time for God's people. It's a time where they're caught in this cycle of rebellion over and over and over again. And the cycle uh, of the book of Judges goes something like this. They're in the land There's peace, there's prosperity God's providing for them, and then the people turn away from God. They turn to false gods, they worship the gods of the nations, they worship man-made things. So then God hands them over to a foreign nation, they come in and enslave them. There's time of suffering and pain. Then the people cry out to God. He sends a judge to rescue them and save them. The people have a time of peace under this judge. That judge dies And then they turn away from God again. And this cycle repeats over and over and over again, time and time again through the book of Judges. It's almost like a downward spiral. If you you have some time, go and read Judges as well. And that's where this story of Ruth is set. In that time. So this time of Judges is not a happy time for God's people. It's time full of pain, suffering, war, rebellion. And Judges gives us a different perspective to the book of Ruth. Judges uh, is like a Google Earth view. It's concerned with the whole nation of Israel. It's concerned with generation after generation, lots of years. Whereas Ruth brings us down to street view. Brings us down to focusing on one family over a few short years in this unhappy period of time. So let's, let's dive in and meet this family and see uh, the story that evolves And uh, through this chapter, there's kind of three scenes that we're going to walk through tonight. And the first scene is in verses 1 to 5, and we see the hopes of this family are dashed. Uh, Have a read with me again at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. We see... Uh, where's this story set? Well, it's in God's land. It's in Bethlehem. For some of us, when we hear the word Bethlehem, we think of a happy time. We think of Christmas. But this is not a good time in Bethlehem. Did you see there's a famine in the land? There's no food. There's no provision. And it's, it's quite striking because actually the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So there's no food in this place where there is meant to be food. And so what is this family do in that first verse we hear that they they plan to go to Moab they're going to leave God's land 
Let's have a look at this family, though. Uh, Have a look at verse 2 there with me. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Marlon and Kilion. Uh, This is, you know, pretty nuclear kind of families. And there's a dad, there's a mum, there's two sons. But when the Bible gives us names, we, we should always take note. They're telling us for a reason. And Elimelech, his name literally means that God is king. This guy, the leader of their family, his name is strong. It says God is king. But what's he doing? How's he acting? Well, he's taking his family away from God's land. And what happens when they leave God's land? When, they, when Elimelech takes his family to Moab? Well, we read that in verse 3, don't we? Elimelech dies. So Naomi's just left with two sons. They marry Moabite women, and that's where we get the the title of our book. One of these women, Moabite women, is named Ruth. The other is Orpah. But then in verse 5, what happens again? Naomi's sons both die. Naomi, you know, it would... this all happens in five verses, ten years of hardship Naomi has faced. Famine in the land, her husband dies, her two sons dies. Can you imagine being her? Her hopes of future are dashed. She's a widow in a foreign land with no kids. Her family line will end. No one to protect her. But there's, there's some questions that are raised, I think, as we read these, these first five verses. Some questions come to mind like, why? Why did this family leave God's land if God was their king? Why did uh, Naomi's sons marry Moabite women? That was something that God told them specifically not to do. One thing is for sure, this family isn't a model Israelite family. But still, you can't, your heart can't, you can't help but go out to Naomi, can it? And feel the pain and disappointment that she would be feeling. And the question of where is God in this? And maybe that's a question you've cried out. Where is God in the pain and disappointment of life that you may have felt? Well, we don't have to wait long because the second scene, God visits his people. In verses 6 to 18, we see this. Have a look there at verse 6 with me. It says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Naomi's still in Moab, and what does she hear? God comes to the aid of his people. Literally, it's God visits his people. He provides food for them. He breaks the famine. There is food in the house of bread again. So Naomi, completely broken, plans to return home with her daughters. You know, but only a short way into her journey, possibly on the outskirts of Moab, she turns to her daughters-in-law and says, go back, don't return with me. Do the sensible thing. Coming home with me, there's no hope, there's no security, there's no future with me. But Orpah and Ruth both turn to us with tears in their eyes, say, no, we will go home with you. But Naomi insists, have a look at what she says in verse 11. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. 
you know, she, she's insisting, saying, girls, it's the sensible thing to do. Humanly speaking, the best option is to go back to Moab, to go back to your families, where there's future, where there's security. And this kind of makes sense to Orpah. Orpah, in verse 14, kisses Naomi goodbye and goes back to Moab. That's the logical thing to do. But Ruth, in contrast, she said at the end of verse 14, she clings to Naomi. Literally, she cleaves to Naomi. She's committing her life to be with Naomi. But Naomi, once again, it's like, you know, she goes, goes into bed a third time and says, Ruth, leave me. Don't return with me. Your sister-in-law has done the wise thing. She's done the sensible thing. But Ruth, her reply is shocking. Have a look at verse 16. See what she says there. She says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Do you realise how shocking these words are from Ruth. Almost unbelievable. She is saying in this statement, she's leaving everything behind. Everything she's ever known, her family, her security, her people. And this isn't just, you know, for a time. It's not just for a holiday in the land of Bethlehem. This is a forever commitment. Ruth, too, is a widow here. This is, this is a life-changing moment for Ruth. It made me think of a life-changing moment for myself and my wife when we left Sydney two, two and a half years ago to move to Wellington. We left behind our family. We, we'd grown up with, we'd, with all the places, all the restaurants. We knew our friendships. We left behind everything we'd ever known. But it, kinda has, it hasn't been anything like Ruth's commitment here because... Uh, moving to New Zealand. I haven't become a New Zealand citizen. I haven't started following the All Blacks. And I still actually go back to Sydney time and time again. See, for Ruth here, though, this is, this is life-changing. As she's, she's not just committing to Naomi here. Do you see who she commits herself to? Do you see who she turns to in this moment? She's committing herself to God. She's, she's committing herself to the one true God. She's turning away from the false gods of Moab and saying, I'm going to commit and trust in the one true God. This kind of devotion and trust in the midst of pain and grief and brokenness is like no one else we've seen in this story so far. The people you would expect to have seen this trust from didn't have it, but Ruth is saying, I'm committing myself to God. Where is God in the, the pain and, and disappointment of life? Well, he's at work in Ruth's life. But there's, there's more to see here. As the last section, the last scene of this story, there's hope. Hope anticipated for the future. Naomi and Ruth, they continue on in their journey to Bethlehem. Naomi doesn't dare say another word. They finally reach Bethlehem, and when they get there... The whole town is stirred. They're, they're, they watch these women come in and they go, is that Naomi? Is that, the, is that the same Naomi who grew up here, who we you know, used to know? You know, Kind of like when you go to a high school reunion, most of you maybe haven't been at one of them yet, you haven't been at a high school that long, 
But you go to a high school union and you look around and, um, like, you look around and people are like, oh, man, is that that person? Man, they've lost their hair or, you know, oh, they've got a beard or, you know, man, they've changed. Age has actually been good to that person. But for Naomi, she doesn't want to play that game here. She says in verse 20 there, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi says, I'm not that same woman who left 10 years ago. As as I've been reflecting and reading over these words, I was chatting to a friend of mine in Sydney. Her name's Brenda. And uh, over the past three years, she has faced wave after wave of suffering and pain. Uh, When I was speaking to her, she'd just left hospital um, after having her third major bowel surgery in the past six months. Uh, And Brenda's only 26 years old. And on top of that, last, in the last year, she lost her dad to cancer. I was speaking to Brenda, and her words, I think, capture kind of the sense of the pain and the brokenness that maybe Naomi was feeling, maybe the pain and brokenness that some of us feel at times. Brenda said this, she said, The disease has taken so much from me over the last three years. It's taken my ability to work, to do everyday tasks, to socialise and to exercise, to even leave the house to get out of bed, but worst of all, it's taken so much from the person I am. I've been knocked to the ground, had to pick myself up, dust myself off and trudge on time and time again, each time feeling more and more empty, feeling more and more broken. I've watched other people achieve my goals and dreams while I've felt left behind wondering why I can never achieve anything I strive for. I can only imagine the pain and grief that my friend Brenda feels. Even as I talk to her on the phone, I feel the the weight of her words. And I can only imagine the pain and the grief that Naomi would have felt walking back into Bethlehem. But I wonder, as we read Naomi's words, are they actually all true? Is she completely empty? She is an issue. Who's there standing right by her side? Well, Ruth is, isn't she? And this, I think, this can happen when we're in despair. We can lose perspective. We can miss things that are right in front of our noses, the way God is working. See, Naomi's theology was right. God was sovereign over her situation. But Naomi's picture of God here isn't big enough. She doesn't have the peace that God is working for her good, that he's, work, he's even at work in this situation. We see God at work in his goodness, even in this pain and brokenness. Firstly, because Naomi isn't alone. Ruth is with her. But then we also see uh, the goodness of God's work because there's always hope with God. Have a look at the, the last part of verse 22. Have a look at it there. It says, Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, were arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is, this is hinting at the trajectory of the rest of the story of Ruth. You know, we've, think even about chapter 1. We've gone from famine to back in the land with food at the start of the harvest season. God is at work. 
What do we learn from this chapter? Well, we can, we can sympathise with this, can't we? With the brokenness and the pain and disappointment. This is written so many years ago, but it's so relevant to us today. Because for many of us, you know, we've experienced similar brokenness, shattered dreams. But what do we learn ultimately from this chapter? Well, we learn about the character of God, who he is. You see, uh, the, the story of Ruth has kind of two, two stories going on. There's like the surface level story about Ruth and Naomi and what's happening in their lives. But then there's below the surface where the hidden hand of God is at work. You see, God is the central character of the book of Ruth. And in this chapter, we learn two things about the character of God. Firstly, we learn that God is sovereign. J.I. Packer uh, speaks of sovereignty like this. He says, let us rid our minds of the idea that things are as they are because God cannot help it. He is at work and has the final word. You see, Naomi here has no doubt that God's sovereign. She alludes to it a few times that he is in control. But just in Naomi's limited perspective, she finds it very hard to see the good that he's working. And it's so true, isn't it? In really hard times, times where we are broken, when our expectations aren't going to plan, it's so hard to see God's goodness. But we still need to hold in our mind that God is in control, that he is sovereign over it, that he is at work in it. Where is God in those moments? Well, he's right there with us. He's actively working out his plans in every moment. Romans 8.28 tells us this. It says, and we know that in all things, see that phrase, all things, God works for the good of those who love him. See, in the brokenness, in the pain, God is at work. It can be so hard to see in the moment, but God is at work there with us. My friend Brenda has been a massive encouragement to me in her pain and her suffering. In the midst of it, she hasn't let go of the reality that God is right there with her. And, and she's told me that the, the main comfort for her in her brokenness is that God is in control. That God hasn't forsaken her. Even though she doesn't understand the pain and the brokenness that she feels, she trusts that God is in control. And that brings her great joy and great comfort. I wonder, do you have that peace in your thinking of the character of God, that he is sovereign? I know for myself, if something isn't working out the way I want, when I want... You know, I can start to jump to conclusions. I can start to get frustrated, start thinking, okay, God, it's not going according to the plan I had for my life. What's, what's that about? Where are you? What are you doing? But in those moments, am I actually trusting in God's sovereignty, in his timing, that he's in control? I think so often our horizons can be too short. We judge too soon. We want to be in control. You know, wanting our expectations to be met in our time. Well, this chapter of Ruth 
is in wanting us to hear loud and clear that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is at work in every situation and he is at work for our good. The second thing we learn from this chapter about God is that he cares for his people. We saw this, didn't we, when he visited his people, when he provided for them food. God hadn't forgotten them. In the pain and disappointment of life, in the unmet expectations, the shattered dreams, where is God? Well, he's right there. Right there with his people, caring for them, providing for them, more than we can ever imagine. And for us, this side of of the cross of Jesus... We even have a, full, we have a fuller picture of how God has provided and cared for us. Because in Jesus, we have God coming to earth in the flesh, visiting us, walking amongst us and dying for us, taking our sin, our brokenness, our pain on the cross so that we will never be empty again. He was forsaken, so we will never be forsaken. You see, at the cross of Jesus, we see God's sovereignty and his care embrace, as that's the place where God is ultimately working for our good. So if God has acted that way in the past, time and time again, he cares and is in control. We can trust him with our future, that no matter what the circumstance, he is at work And he cares for us. In those times when we don't understand, when we're hit with wave after wave of setback or or shattered expectations or disappointment and pain, will will you despair? Or will you keep turning to God like Ruth did and trust him? Trust him that he is in control. I heard someone say, In those times when pain and disappointment come, it's not about knowing the why, but it's about knowing the who. The who who is over it all. And we know the who. That is God. The God we love, who is sovereign and who cares for us more than we can ever imagine. So join me as I pray to him now. Father, we come to you with all different circumstances, with worries, anxieties about life, we come to you, the God who is sovereign over them all, and we pray that no matter what the circumstance, we would continue to come to you in trust. We thank you that you care for us more than we can ever imagine, and we see that in the cross of Jesus. Thank you that you are with us, And we pray that in the difficult times of life, we'd remember you are working for our good and that you always have the final word. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.